Boaz went straight to the public square and took his place there. Before long, the closer relative, the one mentioned earlier by Boaz, strolled by. Step aside, old friend, said Boaz. Take a seat. The man sat down. Boaz then gathered ten of the town elders together and said, Sit down here with us. We've got some business to take care of. And they sat down. Boaz then said to his relative, The piece of property that belonged to our relative Elimelech is being sold by his widow Naomi, who has just returned from the country of Moab. I thought you ought to know about it. Buy it back if you want it. You can make it official in the presence of those sitting here and before the town elders. You have first redeemer rights. If you don't want it, tell me so I'll know where I stand. You're the first in line to do this, and I'm next after you. He said, I'll buy it. Then Boaz added, you realize, don't you, that when you buy the field from Naomi, you also get Ruth the Moabite, the widow of our dead relative, along with the redeemer responsibility to have children with her to carry on the family inheritance. Then the relative said, oh, I can't do that. I jeopardized my own family's inheritance. You go ahead and buy it. You can have my rights. I can't do it. In the olden times in Israel, this is how they handled official business regarding matters of property and inheritance. A man would take off his shoe and give it to the other person. This was the same as an official seal or personal signature in Israel. So when Boaz's redeemer relative said, go ahead and buy it, he signed the deal by pulling off his shoe. Boaz then addressed the elders that all the people in the town square that day, you are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech and Kilion and Malon, including responsibility for Ruth the foreigner, the widow of Malon. I'll take her as my wife and keep the name of the deceased alive along with his inheritance. The memory and reputation of the deceased is not going to disappear out of this family or from his hometown. To all this, you are witnesses this very day. All the people in the town square that day, backing up the elders, said, Yes, we are witnesses. May God make this woman who is coming into your household like Rachel and Leah, the two women who built the family of Israel. May God make you a pillar in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. With the children God gives you from this young woman, may your family rival the family of Perez, the son of Tamar born to Judah. Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife. Boaz slept with her. By God's gracious gift, she conceived and had a son. The town women said to Naomi, Blessed be God, he didn't leave you without family to carry on your life. May this baby grow up to be famous in Israel. He'll make you young again. He'll take care of you in old age. And this daughter-in-law who has brought him into the world and loves you so much, why, she's worth more to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and held him in her arms, cuddling him, cooing over him, waiting on him hand and foot. The neighborhood women started calling him Naomi's baby boy, but his real name was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. 
This is the family tree of Perez. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Ram. Ram had Aminadab. Aminadab had Nashon. Nashon had Salmon. Salmon had Boaz. Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse. And Jesse had David. Our appreciation to Johan and all the readers the last four weeks. <clears throat> so good. I've just really enjoyed that. And Laura, you handled those names like a champ. I'm not tackling them myself. Uh, who did? Oh, Google. The great theologian Google. Um, quite enjoyed this. So we're, we're in for the... Uh, uh, the grand finale, if you will, the uh, season, uh, the season finale. Will she say yes to the dress? Will there be happily ever after? Let's let's find out. Uh, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna catch you up on the story because maybe you're new, uh, or maybe you weren't paying attention, which often happens. So uh, I'll just gonna get you up to chapter four. The story takes place. By the way, I'd like you to just uh, shout out if you if you know the answer to some of these questions. Just keep you on your toes. It takes place in uh, the time of Judges, which is a dark period for Israel, uh, about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. This is where everybody did right in their own eyes. And uh, reminds me a little bit of 2018 GTA Canada. The story narrows down to a town called, which means house of bread, very good, which is ironic because the house of bread, there is a famine. And then the story narrows down even more to a particular family headed by a, kind of a foolish man named Elimelech, very good. And he foolishly decides to leave God's people in Bethlehem. And of all the places on earth that he could go, he chooses to relocate his family to Moab, very good, which is a bizarre place to go because they worship a false god and they're known for lots of perversion and sexual sin, and they have two sons there, uh, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, very good. Their two sons are, Killian. very good, Killian and Malon, and yeah, right, good. And um, they marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah Winfrey, very good, and no children are born during this time. Then tragically, Elimelech and both the sons die, leaving three destitute widows. Um, so they decide to go back to, or Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem, where she hears that God is blessing her people once again, that the famine is over. Along the way, with these three women, she stops and realizes, I've got nothing to offer these ladies. You better go back to Moab, marry a nice Moab boy, because I, I got nothing Orpah Winfrey takes her up on that and goes back, but Ruth says, I'm, I'm with you. She has what I believe is a legit conversion experience, and she says the best line in the whole book, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Still, they are women in a tough spot facing starvation. No food, no money, no help. They're desperate. Ruth gleans the field, which is sort of the Hebrew soup kitchen food bank. 
And uh, it's very dangerous for a young woman, but in faith, she's trusting that God is going to show some favor through somebody else. And then we're introduced to one of the great themes of the book of Ruth, not luck, but providence, providence, the invisible hand of God sort of working out the details. And we're told ju- just, it just so happens uh, of all the fields that Ruth could have gleaned, uh, she just so happens to find herself in the field of a man named Boaz, very good. And he just so happened to be godly, just so happened to be very rich, just so happened to be very single and generous. And what happened then is he just so happened to initiate conversation, pray for her, offer her a generous gift, uh, offer her a temp job until harvest is over. Love is in the air. And so last week, with time running out, the end of the harvest, they're going to go their separate ways very soon. Uh oh. Uh, So Naomi, the wiser, older woman, says, here's what you got to do. Go tanning, shave your legs. (laughs) Men already have hairy legs. They want something different. And uh, it's all about timing with men, too. You know, wait for him to have a few chicken wings and a few cold ones and wait until he goes to sleep. And then she does something that I would not necessarily suggest. She, She... but it works out pretty good. She snuggles up at Boaz's feet, and he wakes up uh, a little freaked out. Who's there? It's me, Ruth. Boaz says, thank you, Jesus. And Ruth, <laughs> Ruth has made her heart and her intentions uh, known, and Boaz promises her, I would love to marry you. Uh, I'm surprised that you were into me, actually. But then he tells her there's a complication. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I'm not legally first in line to marry you. Another dude has dibs, legal dibs on you. And he's standing between Boaz and Ruth. And speaking of dibs, uh, you know, in Cedarview and all that, didn't Mike Coles do a great job? I mean, like, yeah, why is he not your pastor is my question. So final act, will love overcome, will... She say yes to the dress. Will Naomi continue to be a bitter old lady watching soaps and telling kids to get off her lawn? Let's let's dig into it. Verse 1, chapter 4. Boaz goes down to the town gate, took a seat there. In my trip to Israel, I got to see the archaeological remains of the town gate. Found out that this is actually um, the place where people would would meet, the town elders would assemble, it is, it is the place of business and social gathering, and uh, Boaz is not wasting time here. Ruth looks adorable, he wants to get married immediately. I'm not one for long engagements, Vicky and me were, had a five-month engagement, Boaz is maybe going for a day here, I don't know, <laughs> maybe a little longer, maybe long enough to get a cake or something, uh, but uh, so first thing in the morning, Man of action, Boaz, runs to the town center. He's like, I got to find Mr. What's-His-Face. I got to dump him, and then I'm going to marry Ruth. Bible doesn't record this dude's name, I think, because he's not worthy of it, because he's a loser. Loser. (laughs) I'll tell you why in a minute. Boaz sits down, and as soon as he sits down, what happens? Wouldn't you know it? Mr. What's-His-Face comes by. Just so happens. Okay, what's that word again? Providence. 
So you're going to see Boaz here be a, a take charge kind of guy. Boaz invites Mr. What's-His-Face to sit down. He grabs 10 guys, 10 elders. He says, I need you, 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 you. Come here. I got to do business. You sit down. You sit down. We're going to do a legal transaction here. I need witnesses. Then he says to Mr. What's-His-Face, who is legally and spiritually obligated as the closest living relative to Naomi and Ruth to take care of them, by the way. That's, that's the Leviticus 25 uh, uh, Levitical marriage deal that is spoken of. He's the one who should have been checking on them. He's the one who should have been advocating for them, throwing a couple bucks their way. At this point, it seems like he has done nothing for these women. Uh, they came to town starving. He probably lives a mile or two away. It would be like if you're an adult who owns your own home, has a job, and your aunt or your niece lives a few miles away, and they're starving to death. They're new in town. You don't even go, how are you doing? Do you need any food? Your husbands are dead. Can I pray for you? Nothing. He's abdicated. He's failed them. Loser. Okay? Maybe you go, just go easy on him. He didn't do anything wrong. Here's my point. He didn't do anything. You know, that's the problem. Sometimes we sin by commission. The things that we actually do, we do bad things. Sometimes we sin by omission. The things we neglect to do. We don't do anything. And Boaz, who has no legal obligation, we covered that last week, is the only one who seems to be paying attention. And so he comes to this man and says, verse 4, look, legally, you have this opportunity to buy the family plot and the land. You need to make up your mind right now. Do you want to buy this land? And if you don't, I'll buy the land. I'll fix the mess. I'll do what's right. He's an honorable man, Boaz. And and in this notice that there are three kinds of men when it comes to business here in the book of Ruth. There's Elimelech, who took risks, but he was a fool. And it destroyed his family, and it, it leads to death. And, and some of you men are like that. You say, well, I make plans, I'm courageous, I make decisions, I lead, I take risks. But if you're a fool, you'll devastate your family. You'll lead them into death and not life. And the other man, this unnamed man, doesn't do anything wrong. He just doesn't do anything. He doesn't take care of that which is his to look after. And then there's Boaz, the guy who is picking up the mess of these other failed men, and he's trying to help these women who are in a bad spot. So what will the answer be of this man and he says in verse 5, all right, I'll redeem it. No, 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 that's the wrong answer, Mr. What's-His-Face. You're, you're ruining the love story here. You know, you can see the rom-com potential of this, right? We want Ruth to get with Boaz, and, you know, dummy here is going to mess it up. So, now, I think Briggsy will back me up on this. Not the dummy part, but... When it comes to real estate, this man is foolish. Uh, Boaz comes to him, do you want to buy some real estate? And he's like, yeah, I like real estate. Great. He doesn't 
get a contract. He doesn't survey the details. He doesn't look at additional expenses. He doesn't read the fine print. So here's what Boaz is going to do. Shrewdly negotiate a deal, and he is not going to take no for an answer. He wants to get married to Ruth. He doesn't say, oh, I guess the Lord doesn't want me to have her and walk away. No, Boaz is going to find a way legally, ethically, morally acceptable way to get rid of Mr. What's-His-Face, okay? And he's going to negotiate shrewdly. Is this a godly thing to do? Yeah, it is. There's a lot of business people in this room. Um, And there is a corrupt way to do things, which is a lot of the businesses going on these days. It's it's maybe one of the reasons we got into such a pickle in 2008. Um, And then there's shrewd. Jesus himself, you know, told his disciples to be shrewd as snakes, as innocent, as cynical free, as morally pure as doves. So we, we've got to live in that dichotomy, that, that tension. We can actually live in that, that there's a, such a thing as godly shrewdness. And I'm grateful for godly, shrewd business women, business men who can maximize a dollar and in turn be more generous to the kingdom. Um, not sinful, but shrewd. So Boaz here is going to cut a deal shrewdly. And here's the strings attached, he says in verse 5. The first thing he says you get with this land is Naomi. Well, what's a Naomi? Oh, she's a bitter mother-in-law. He's not lying. Would you like a nice piece of cheap real estate? Yeah. Okay, it comes with a bitter mother-in-law. Oh. How many of you, you're, <laughs> you're walking through a house with the real estate agent, looks great, the price is right, this is, a, this is an awesome house. Agent says, you should know, uh, right upstairs in the master bedroom, there's a bitter old woman, she stays. <laughs> oh, this deal has suddenly lost interest for me. Furthermore, he says, you also marry the Moabite Ruth. Now, he likely doesn't know what a gem that Ruth is, Um, All he probably hears is Moabite. Are Hebrew men into Moabite women? Not so much. Not so much. And um, especially one that's already been married. So it's starting to sound like, this could be one too many wives and one too many mother-in-laws, if you know what I'm saying, right? And it, it, it looks like he's maybe picking up baggage and (laughs) carry-ons. And so not only that, Boaz says, you're going to need to get Ruth pregnant. That's part of the deal. You're going to need to make some babies. Do you like babies? Do you want some babies? A lot of dudes are like, no, they're tiny sprinklers. I, I I already have a plant, and the plant died. And so, plus, maybe this dude already has grown kids, and now he's got to look at having more kids with a woman he doesn't even know, and then those kids will grow up and want part of his inheritance. You see, this is getting a little complicated. The guy would have never thought through all the implications of the deal, but there's big bad brother Boaz laying it out for him. Here's the fine print of the contract. You sure you want this deal? Shockingly, Mr. What's-His-Face uh, has a change of mind. He says, I'd love to, but um, 
I just can't. That's, that's shrewd negotiating of a man in love. And he, is he lying? No, he's not lying. He's using spirit-led negotiation. Let's call it that. Spirit-led negotiation. Now, Boaz is at a station in life where he can actually afford to do this. He's not in the same financial positions that he was at age 20. Um, to get to this point where he's able to redeem Ruth. Um, what has Boaz been doing up until this point? Well, he's been building his business. He's been making a living. He's been investing wisely and tithing generously. I added that last part. Um, he, you know, we wondered last week if, if Boaz was single... Because maybe he looks like, you know, Steve Buscemi uh, or later era Ron Howard. These are references not everybody will appreciate. I understand. Maybe he has a five-pound goiter on his neck. Um, could it be, maybe, in God's providence, he was waiting for such a time as this? That's another theory. When you're a single man, guys, I'm talking to you now, this does not mean it's an opportunity for you to extend your adolescence until marriage. Um, it's still a time for you to act like a man because marriage is for men, not boys. Too many men think, you know, when I get married, then I'll act like a man. No, you become a man, and that prepares you for marriage. And as a man... You leave your father and mother's house, you finish your education, you get a job, you make wise financial choices, you establish yourself as a reputable person with, uh, with good ethics, and, and, and when God should bring along the woman of your dreams, you're then able to get married. So tithe generously to our church, because we we're going to get that fixed, because I'm about to have epilepsy. One more time. Let's, let's try another setting. And yeah. Oh, I'm going to anger. Let's try again. I don't think I can continue until we try one more time. Here comes Glenn to the rescue. And we can do this in the dark. I, I'd prefer that. Look at that. Oh. Okay, I'm going to try to not have ADD, and there, that's better. <laughs> Look, Boaz is ready, ready for marriage because he hasn't been playing video games and clubbing all the time. He's been godly and faithful in preparing himself. And now, this is interesting. Here's the custom, verse 7. So when, what's his face says to Boaz? Buy it for yourself. He takes off his sandal. Again, there's, there's witnesses, courts in session. It's legally binding. Um, it's the way they would seal the deal. It, it would be our equivalent of, of signing a contract, getting a notary, spitting on your hand and shaking, whatever. Um, they would take off their sandal, and it would be a public declaration that they had agreed to the deal. Now, if you're a Christian... And you're going to do business with a Christian. 
should you get a contract, meet with an attorney, write it all out? Yeah. And too many Christians think, oh, they love Jesus, I love Jesus, it'll be fine. No, it won't, because the world has fallen, things take longer, cost more. He said, she said, go bad. And I thought you meant this. So then, verse 9, Boaz is going to stand up, give a speech. He's publicly declaring what he intends to do. He said to the elders and all the people, Elimelech, Kilion, Malon, made a mess. And they didn't leave proverbial life insurance or support. They failed to execute on their responsibilities to take care of their family. And I'm going to take care of what these men failed to do. Verse 10, now he is going to pledge his vows to Ruth. I'm going to buy the land. I'll take care of Naomi. I'll marry Ruth. I will honor her deceased husband. We will have a child. The family line will not die. I am Boaz hear me roar, okay? No legal obligation to do this. It's just pure grace. Mr. What's-His-Face was legally obligated to do all this. Boaz is doing it. Not by obligation. He was doing the legal obligation of another man. It was Elimelech and Malon and Kilion's job, and then it became Mr. What's-His-Face's job, and none of these men did their job. So Boaz is going to come in as the redeemer and he'll do the job. And let me say this to you men. Um, one of the great distinctions and honors of being a Christian man is an opportunity to be a redeemer. Now this applies to Christian women as well, but I'm just talking to the men right now. There are too many women who have been abused and raped and neglected by other men. And guys, you have the chance, at least in an earthly way, to redeem that situation. Some of you will marry a single mom. Um, um, a man has walked out on his responsibilities, and you will help redeem that woman and those kids. Some of you will marry uh, a, a woman whose father didn't do his job, and you will love her, and you will care for her, and you will encourage her, and you will pray with her, and you will be a vessel of earthly redemption. And I would say, though this is maybe controversial perhaps, that in your desire to be a redeemer, which I would wholeheartedly endorse, that you look for women who are like Ruth. Not that you don't love or encourage or support all women, but when you pursue a woman to be your wife, when you're giving your life to her and you're going to have children with her and you're going to make sure that she is not oh, just a woman in need, but that she's a woman of Ruth's character. That's for free. That's an aside. Verse 11. Then all the people who are present, they're going to respond. They pray. The first prayer is for Ruth. God, we pray that Ruth would be like the matriarchs who are the, the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, she's gone from being a Moabite outsider to a highly respected matriarch insider. And they pray for Boaz, verse 12. Boaz, you're a great man. We all know it. You're good in business. You're generous. You're kind. Continue. Keep running that race well. 
And then lastly, they pray for the children who they believe in faith will come through them. And verse 13, finally, they get married. Da, 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 da. Single people, hear me. Uh, when you get married, life does not get easier. Uh, I'm telling you, it gets harder. And when you have children, it gets even harder. I love my wife with all my heart. Uh, we have been through some brutal times. There have been so many times of redemption. I have three kids. I love being a dad. They are a glorious, wonderful inconvenience and, and a lot of work and an enormous expense. And we're not even in the college years yet. But God has shown, has said on my life, loving kindness. Uh, he has blessed me through a family. See, the story opens chapter one at a funeral. An unbelieving woman. Doesn't get any sadder than that. And it concludes with a wedding and a baby shower. And Ruth ends up being a beloved, believing wife who, who worships the God of the Bible. And that's a beautiful story of redemption. And if you've tracked with us since chapter one, Notice how she goes from being a foreigner, chapter 2, to a lowly servant, chapter 3, to a, a temp employee, chapter 4, to a beloved wife and mother. And they get married, and then they consummate the covenant. They have sexual relations for the first time. We would encourage you not to be sexually active until you're married, and then make up for lost time. That would be our official position here. <clears throat> you know, I've, um, <clears throat> I've had all kinds of couples through my office over the years. This is not a scientific poll or anything, but not one of them has ever said to me, man, I wish, I wish we hadn't waited until marriage. I wish we'd fooled around a lot more before we tied the knot. Not once. I have heard lots of couples say the opposite. I, I wish we had waited. Could it be that there is some wisdom in this very counter-cultural, biblical instruction to have these godly sexual desires funneled into the right outlet. That is the covenant of marriage. And here I want you to see that the Bible isn't ashamed to talk about sex. It, it, it just does so in the context of marriage. Verse 13, when he slept with her, uh, the NIV says, when he made love to her, the, the King James and the ESV get much more um, colorful and specific. And I'll let you look that up yourself. The, the Bible isn't prudish, but your pastor is a little bit. Um, it says, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Couldn't conceive 10 years previous. Something wrong with the drinking water in Moab maybe. Wedding night, gets pregnant. I mean, that's a big day. I got married and got pregnant. That's a big day, a little honeymoon baby. Chapter one, God gave a harvest. Chapter two, God gives favor and a job. Chapter three, uh, God gives love. Chapter four, God gives a baby. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James says. Verse 14, the, the scene shifts now to, to the mother-in-law 
we, we love Naomi. We've been tracking with her. And the women from the Bible study group in the neighborhood, they come along her and they say, you know what, Naomi, when you get older, grandkids will keep you young. Um, grandkids are a form of redemption. They say to her, you're blessed. She's no longer bitter Mara, right? She's back to blessed, sweet Naomi. This, this grandbaby is going to be a source of great joy to her. Just raise your hand. Who are, the, who are the grandparents in the room? Yeah. Would you say that grandkids are a blessing, a source of joy in your life? Yeah. You know, grandpas who are down wrestling with, with kids and doing puzzles never did a puzzle once when they were a dad. And now as grandpas, they're, they're, they wind up the kids and then send them back to mom and dad. It's a beautiful thing. Naomi's life has been very hard, but this, this grandson is going to make all the difference in the world. And they say, verse 15, he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Seven is, is the number of perfection in Scripture. Seven sons would be the prototypical perfect family in Scripture. And we're seeing the full redemption of these, these women. Ruth has gone from being an idolater to a worshiper, from being a widow to a wife, from being flat broke to richly blessed, from, from being all alone to being a loved mom and wife. God is good. God is good. Naomi has gone from being a bitter old woman to a blessed grandma. And then verse 16, I think one of the most beautiful snapshots in all of Scripture, the final picture that we have of Naomi, is holding her grandchild. You can just see it, you know? She's smelling that new baby head. I, just, I love that. I wish there was a car freshener. It smelled like baby head. And she's, she's, she's blowing raspberries on his belly, you know, just that thing. And she's rubbing his back and burping him. And he falls asleep. And she's, she's in the rocking chair. She's just smiling and reflecting on how God has taken her somewhere. He's taken her on a journey, and she's lucky to be a grandma. Now, check this out, verse 17. Then the neighbors come over and name the kid. And I'd be like, hmm, hey, can I have a say in this? Uh, maybe it's a prophecy. I don't know. But they name him Obed, which means worshiper or servant of God. Names mean something in the Bible, don't they? He he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of who? David. Now, now, is that guy kind of a big deal? Yeah, King David, you may have heard of him. The story starts out as dark as it could. A famine, a funeral, time of judges. It ends with redemption, salvation, marriage, a baby, has said. It's a story about Legacy. Now, let me hammer this on my teens and young adults. Um, there's something even better than having a good weekend. You want to have a good legacy. The issue is so important because it, it then begins to trace the genealogy that comes from this little boy, Obed, who was born from Ruth and Boaz. And ultimately, you will see that Jesus comes from this family. Isn't that cool? You never know who your children are going to be. 
You never know who your grandchildren are going to be. You never know who your great-grandchildren will be. And, and what the providential hand of God intended for your future, you just, you just never know. And you can read the genealogy here. I'm, I put all those verses together. I don't want to touch it because I'm going to mess it up. But um, there is another place in Scripture, one other place, in fact, that the name of Ruth is mentioned. Anybody know where that is? Matthew 1, the, the genealogy, the opening genealogy of the line of Jesus. Man, it, it reads like a Hebrew phone book. Like it's, so often we give new Christians a, a New Testament and they're so excited and they start with Matthew chapter 1 and it's like, oh, why did I start with this? You know, it's, it's name after name and they begat who. But it's a bizarre genealogy. It includes five women, which is very unusual for the patriarchal times. And there are prostitutes and liars and adulterers and murderers in Jesus' family. So come on in. You know, there's room for you too. That's good news. God came into human history through this family. And where was Jesus born, by the way? Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus Christ, the bread of life, born in the house of bread. Um, the book of Ruth is about redemption. The problem with the people to whom Matthew is writing is that they're steeped in religion. Um, I believe the God of the Bible hates religion. Religion is the enemy of redemption. Religion and redemption are constantly at odds. Those of us who are religious are equally as sinful as the prostitute, as the thief, as the uh, drug addict, because religion is the enemy of Jesus. Now, here's why I hate religion, and here's why I think Ruth, among others, is included in that genealogy of Jesus. To fight against the spirit of of religion. See, religion says if you obey God, God will love you. Some of you may have heard that. If you, if you stop drinking, if you stop sleeping around, if you stop doing this or that or the other thing and start doing these other things, then God will love you. And redemption says God just loves you. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. And because God loves you, you can love God and you can obey him and he can change your heart and change your mind and he can change your life. Like Romans says, it's his kindness that actually leads to repentance. Um, the false gospel of religion is so subtle. It's like me saying to my girls, you know, who I love and I would say to them, sweetheart, here's a list of things. If you do them, I'll, I'll be your daddy. I'll love you. If you don't do them, I won't love you. I won't be your dad. That's a disgusting false gospel. The truth is, God, as my good father, looks at his kids and he says, I love you. My commands are, are good. I'm here to protect and defend you. Will you love and obey me? 
Secondly, religion says that the world is filled with two kinds of people, good people and bad people. How do you know the good people? Well, they're the ones who are like me, right? Um, And the bad people are the ones who are not like me. That's what religion teaches. Good people, bad people. Religion teaches that there are two kinds of people, repentant and unrepentant. Because I hate to tell you, we're all bad people. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans says. If the world were a Western, we'd all have the black hats. Jesus would be the only dude on a white horse with a white hat. The religious people were the ones who murdered Jesus. That should give you a clue right there that they were on the wrong team. And Jesus goes to the most messed up, jacked up, immoral people, the prostitutes, the alcoholics, the thieves, and he says, you're sinners. And they say, totally, could you help? Would you come over for dinner? Jesus goes to the same or says the same thing to religious people, and they say, you have a demon. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. How could you hang out with the bad guys? You're not a good guy. You broke the rules. We're going to murder you. Third distinction, religious people care all about your birth. Did you grow up in a Christian family? Did you go to the Christian school? Did you go to the Awanas? Did you go to the Christian college? Did you win the Bible Trivia Bowl? Did you, did you know all the worship songs? Did you go to the Alliance camp? You know, I'll tell you what, being born into a Christian family, having folks who love Jesus, having Grammy and Grampy who love Jesus is, is a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful for it in my life. But it is not transferable. Um, you don't get to cut the line to heaven. You don't accept Oma and Opa into your heart. R- religion cares about your birth, but redemption cares about your new birth. That's what redemption is about. A guy comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, you've been born, you're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. You need to be spiritually born again. God needs to be your father. The church needs to be your family. You need to start new. You need a new birth. You can't say, well, I come from a a good Christian family. Ruth didn't come from a good family. Bunch of freaky perverts in Moab. But she got born again. Her life got changed. That's why Matthew includes her in the genealogy of, of Ruth and Boaz because religious people cannot hear the story of redemption enough because they themselves need to be redeemed from religion. I need to be redeemed from religion. I'm calling you today to the Lord Jesus. Repent of sin. Trust in him. He's your redeemer. Listen, I know some of you are in Ruth chapter one right now. It's a dark day. I think of my friend Linda Hearn. Her dad just passed away last night. Um, she's, in a, she's in a tough spot herself medically. Think of my friend Kevin Dixon. We pray and we pray and God doesn't seem to be healing right now in our limited perspective. It feels like many of you are in chapter one. It's dark. Keep going. Get hope from Naomi and Ruth that if you continue with God, 
he will bless. Some of you are in chapter four. You're in a great season and, and you're glad that you stuck with Jesus. Either way, we want you to respond by trusting Jesus, our glorious Boaz, the God who redeems us. Whether it's immorality or the wickedness of religion, he can save you from all of it. And according to Revelation 19, there's going to be one last wedding, a party, a feast. And Jesus is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are the bride. And it's going to be a party. And so I want to invite the elders to come to communion stations. I want to invite the band to come today as we sing and as we celebrate uh, today in, in anticipation of that great day when the bridegroom comes and makes all things right um, in faith, uh, I think, what a glorious day that will be. I'm, I'm experiencing his redemption even now, but there will come a day when I will be fully redeemed. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be a thing of the past. Every injustice will be made right. Our glorious Boaz, Jesus the Redeemer, will come. The God of Hasid wants to give you loving kindness and mercy today. And you're maybe in a tough spot. I just, I want to remind you that his invisible hand of providence is still directing you to places that you can't even fathom right now. Good things are in store. And um, what the enemy meant for evil, to hurt you and harm you, make you cynical, uh, God is redeeming somehow. I don't know how he does it, but he, he does it. And so that is my blessing to you this morning. I want to remind you that um, the Rock Dinner Theater tickets are going quick. And um, the Rock Youth want all the proceeds from that evening to go to the McLaurin family. And so I think that's a beautiful gesture, and we should be extra generous. It's also going to be just a fun night. Um, you are a loved people. I hope you know that. And I'm glad that you made the decision to come to a, a, a church building and be with church people. But part of being the church is actually loving each other. So you don't have to go to your cubicle or go to your school or whatever to be the church. You can be the church right here after and love people and pray for them and listen to them and get out of our comfort zone and be the church. So thank you for coming to church, but go be the church. God bless you as you go.